Anil, and uh, thank you for the beautiful introduction. I also thank you on behalf of Shaitri, ma'am. Uh, oh, welcome, ma'am. And to start this conversation, ma'am, my first question would definitely be, what made you decide that the title of your book should be Turmeric Nation? But actually, in your book, you don't talk a lot about turmeric. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, you wanted to you you're you asking what made me choose my title, yeah. Turmeric Nation? Title. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very catchy title, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. It's a very catchy title. Uh, but you know, actually, I chose the title before the pandemic and before you know all this craze for turmeric began. So, uh, and I had actually chosen it because I was trying to look for something that united, that was sort of um, pan-Indian. You know, where you could say everybody in India uses a particular spice or uses a particular uh, dish or or makes a particular dish. And I found that only turmeric was something that you could go or you could trace it all the way back to the Harappan cooking pots. And they'd be doing this, uh, these archaeological digs uh, in Haryana, uh, near Delhi and elsewhere. And what they found was that in these cooking pots from, say, about 2500 BC, um, they found that Harappans ate wheat, barley, millets, pulses, mango, and they cooked with ginger garlic, yam, and turmeric. So turmeric was there, you know, it sort of, and it was something that uh, goes all the way back to that, uh, you know, to a very ancient time. The other thing was that, you know, uh, I thought everybody used turmeric. And then I found that in, there's an essay on Dalit foods in my uh, book, and I found that the Dalits, uh, you know, in UP and uh, in say in the seventies and eighties, um, what they what was uh, interesting and also really sad about it was that they, uh, for them, turmeric was aspirational because they couldn't really afford it. So whenever somebody came to look at, uh, you know, someone uh, came to look at a girl, for instance, for a marriage, um, the girl's family would say, um, do they make haldiya dal? So do they actually cook, uh, put turmeric in dal and cook with it? And that was the indicator that these that the groom's family was uh, slightly better off than the bride's family. So, so it was also an aspirational dish. So I so that was. I mean, that's the reason why I chose Turmeric Nation um, for the title. And But I don't really talk about turmeric at all in the book. So I'm sure a lot of people are cursing me when they go and, you know, pick up the book and they don't find a single mention of turmeric <laughs> apart from the title. Is, uh, yeah. Then your book is a well-researched book. And you've talked a lot about the food being affected by the region, religion, caste, economic standards. But before you started your research, what was your opinion about the Indian cuisine? How did you perceive it as? Yeah, so as I said, I mean, I thought, you know, we could find something, we could actually find a dish or something that would be very, um, which would be pan-Indian. Um, and I thought it would actually be possible to either identify a dish or an ingredient or a cooking style that was common to all Indians. You know, like we associate pasta and pizza with Italy, right? Uh, I thought we could find something like that. So what I found was there was kitchri. Kitchri is sort of made in different places, right? Um, so that's something which you could call pan-Indian, but it's sort of cooked in very different ways 
in very simple ways, very complex ways. So, you know, you have like the Kichri Gujarati, which uses garlic, onion, and cinnamon, but there's no meat. But then you have Kichri Dawud Khani, which uses meat, eggs, and spinach. So the dish itself then becomes just a bunch of things, but it tastes very different across different places. So I was quite surprised that, um, you know, I couldn't actually identify a single dish or an ingredient or a cooking style that was common to all, uh, to you know, across India. Um, and the other thing which I also found was that, um, you know, I thought I could find something Indian uh, through this, in this method. But what I found was actually that was the wrong way of looking about it, uh, thinking of it. I, I, it was, uh, and I'll go, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but um, you know, just for this, for, for what you've just asked me, the other thing which I found, which was really interesting was that, you know, we always talk about India as being a very pluralist society, as, you know, as being very diverse and the same diversity and pluralism and hybridity comes through in the cooking also and in, in the way in which we think about our food. So I thought, and that actually was at the core of Indian cuisine. And so it's almost like, um, you know, Naipaul wrote this book, um, India, a Million Mutinies, um, and he described the country in that way. And that that's essentially what it is, even for food, that India is, uh, the, the food here sort of echoes that kind of a description of a million mutinies, where you have so many different ways of doing the same thing. Um, uh, and, and each one is as delicious as the other. Uh, and it's this diversity and hybridity that was sort of fundamental to uh, to the concept of India, Indian cuisine. So it's very different from the way we always want to find similarities. But here it is the difference that actually makes us who we are. So I found that very interesting. Yeah. And I think Indian cuisine is full of flavors. And with every geographic change, the way of using those ingredients changes. And in yeah. your book, you beautifully talk about uh, not only the geographic change, being in the same region, how different factors influence the use of ingredients in food. It could be region, a caste, various factors you've talked about. So my question to you is, uh, what you think are the peculiarities of the Indian cuisine? Yeah, so uh, one of the, so there are several uh, uh, interesting sort of uh, uh, things about Indian cuisine. Uh, the first one is that, um, uh, you know, the way uh, uh, the way we think about balance. So Indian cuisine has this concept of balance. And here I say Indian cuisine, which means all the regional cuisines too. And this is something you could almost say is pan-Indian. So it's not about a dish. It's about the way we think about food and think about making the food. So, um, and when I talk about balance, it's about taking, say, the Ayurvedic and the Yunani principles. So both, so Hindus, Muslims, Christians, um, you know, uh, Sikhs, all the different Jains, all of them, everybody uses this notion of balance. They could have used the Ayurvedic uh, system or they can use the Unani system and it's about balancing the humors in your body. Um, so you have hot and cold, um, uh, wet and dry. Uh, so these are the different ways in which you balance the and, and each uh, ingredient hat is connected with a particular thing. So you know some some things like a mango is hot, um, a yogurt is cold, um, uh, so milk is cold. So you sort of combine mango with milk. And that's what creates a balance, uh, a balanced um, uh, dish. 
Um, so that notion was is there throughout, and that is uh, different, I think, from um, other ways, other people's, um, um, you know, or other geographies where they have different notions of balance. This is our notion of balance, and um, I would also include uh, South Asia. So I would include include Pakistan and Bangladesh, and you know, Nepal, and all these um, uh, uh, the neighboring uh, areas um, in this in this kind of a definition. Uh, the second one is about uh, the way in which we pair flavors. So, um, you know, there are two types of uh, the way in which we pair flavors. One is positive pairing and negative pairing. I mean, negative and positive have weird connotations. But, you know, uh, when I say negative pairing, it means that uh, there's each each spice will perform a very unique function in the dish. So if you use tamarind, you're not going to use lemon because both are souring agents. Um, so in, in, in most Indian dishes, and, uh, and I'm not talking about chaat, a chaat is a different thing altogether. But if you take, say, uh, 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 most of the dishes that you would make, uh, you, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't sort of combine amchur, lemon, and tamarind all in the same dish. That's a negative pairing. Now, in positive pairing, which is what you have in the uh, in the American and Western European cuisines uh, and Latin American cuisines, uh, they what they do is they take they would take two souring things, so two things that taste sour, and make put them together to make it even more sour. So they so that's a positive pairing where you know you intensify the flavor by taking two ingredients uh, and putting them together in the dish to intensify it. We don't do it that way. We actually, and this goes back to this concept of balance where each spice will have a unique function in the dish and you can't then use other spices with similar uh, flavors in that dish. So that's something that we do in, in, in our regional cooking. And um, so that's again, something which is peculiar to us. And it's also to, uh, you know, um, uh, it's, sort of something where even southern Mediterranean dishes also are like that, which is why I think in Italy, uh, sorry, in India, we like southern, uh, you know, we like pastas where they do certain types of um, this kind of negative pairing, but we don't like European dishes as much in India because of this positive pairing uh, flavor uh, profile. Um, and yeah, so that's the other thing. And the third one is about history, which um, I can talk about later also, but it's about how we deal with history, where we sort of bring in, uh, you know, our history, the way in which we have connected with the waves of conquerors who've come in and they have settled in and they become part of our, uh, India. And we are part of all of that. Um, you know, we are part of our own history and our history combines all kinds of, uh, um, you know, uh, different waves of uh, 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 sort of migrants. And what we what we do is we adapt and adopt, uh, and and they do the same thing. And so that's another sort of thing that is, um, I would say, not peculiar to India, but maybe you know, if you do research in other countries, maybe that's the way they've done it there too. But in India, the diversity comes from this kind of. Um, uh, yeah. sort of attitude to history where we both embrace and we make the uh, and and the people who come in also embrace our cuisines and and when I say our I mean we are part we are part of that history you know so we we include that in ourselves um, and what we are now uh, you know we are the sum total of what we have what's come before us um, 
very well said ma'am because uh, when you were talking i really was able to relate the, yes in, in north india if you want to make something sa we use lemons and our in south it's always tamarind so wherever the region is mm-hmm. the food choices changes and i'm sure in the picture we'll come up to scientific reasons behind it uh, but there's a question in the chat box and it is arshia shade who has asked me can you throw some light on how history has influenced indian cuisine as you said ki yeah. we have adopted a things with our history yeah so can you tell so, us how they have affected us yeah so you know we we uh, uh, f- so as i said you know all our cuisines regional cuisines rest very either heavily or lightly on layers of history and what they and and um, the way in which history is influenced us is that you know you can go all the way back to the unani and to ayurveda and the concept of equilibrium which i talked about a little uh, bit a little while ago you also have um, you know the different you have the cholas the persians the mauryas moguls and the colonial legacies they all sort of come in and uh, bring their own uh, uh, sort of they all they all ha- bring their own ways of um, uh, cooking things and their own dishes and they have fused together and what you find is that quite similar types of cooking techniques are found in Punjab Uttar Pradesh and the Deccan um and so if i give you an example say of the deccan uh, you know in hyderabad hyderabad was ruled by the nizam and the, the nizam had um uh, turkish ancestry so if you look at the cookbooks the asafia cuisines uh, cookbook um it'll contain recipes of dishes like gazak um kebab akbari pasandi kebab um kurbani meetha na kurbani meetha is bread and butter pudding um you know and it's got this mix of turkish mughal north indian british and local deccani cuisine so you find that again this is about the way in which these um the history sort of mingles in such interesting ways and creates such interesting dishes um in say in the deccan um and you'll find the same thing in other parts of india and even with the spice use if you think about it you know uh, one of the uh, chapters deals with how the moguls uh, you know how the, when the spices came in and you if you look at the uh, cookbooks of the mughal emperors um, you know the early uh, the cooks of the early mughal emperors like uh, babur humayun and akbar uh, they rarely used green or red chilies in the food so yeah. they used sort of the uh, so in their biryanis and pilavs they used black pepper salt saffron and lemon um and even in the kebabs and the koftas and then when you had jahangir uh, ascending to the throne in the, uh, 1569 we begin to use uh, see the use of ginger black cumin and poppy seeds now shah jahan's kitchen used cumin fennel ginger garlic paste coriander powder and mint and it's only from then from the shah jahan period you actually find green chilies entering the mughal cuisine and it stays in there so it's so you you sort of see uh in their cookbooks and in their cooking styles you see how they've taken what is available locally and included it and created the cuisines which we now call mughalai food we also uh, avadhi food all of these uh, different cuisines uh, hark back to this kind of uh, uh, you know the flavor profile yeah it's very interesting and because uh, i was reading that you always talk a lot about uh, black pepper 
and, and then i related back seeing ki whenever we cook anything which is for a religious purpose it is more it is developed before the invaders came to our country so when i was developed we had the basics of our own cuisine it's a very interesting thing to know ma'am uh, ma'am i just want to talk on something which is very well written in your book also that that the food requirements is changing globally and recently the my plate concept which came to define healthy diet uh, when looking closely to the plate we understand that it is the same plate which we had in a traditional diet and as you have said that the ancestors knew what is healthy so when talking about healthy diet what is your take on what to eat for a right time <laughs> yeah i think you are much better place to answer this question than i am but i can tell you and then you should tell me after <laughs> you should tell me after i finished whether you would agree or whether there are things that you would you would add on to it so and mine what i say is based on the research uh, you know and uh, that people have done um, so what uh, what uh, so one of the things that this is also something that surprised me i mean your first question was what were the things that surprised me about uh, indian food and this is another another thing that surprised me it's just not just about indian food but globally as you know the research research says that our bodies actually conditioned to absorb what our ancestors ate so it's actually a cultural ancestry that actually flavors our ideal diet so if we eat what say our grandparents and great grandparents and what they ate and when they ate it uh, that's something that would be part of what uh, what one could consider a healthy diet and so in in the south for instance breakfast is the a largest meal and rice is the main starch and i come from the south um and in the other three geographies uh you have lunch as the main meal and in the east you have rice is rice is uh, the main starch and west and north you have wheat which is chapatis so if you look if we think of the human body in as say uh, uh, as a whole and we think about this notion that it's our ancestry cultural ancestry um and what our body can absorb can only be what our ancestors ate then i th- so in terms of diet um i tried this experiment where um you know i have a uh, high cholesterol and the doctor said that you know why don't you take tablets and i really don't like taking any medicine so i th- i said look let me try doing it through my diet so he said okay car- try it so then i went i when i did this research i said okay let me try let me try eating what my grandparents ate and so since i come from the south you know we eat early uh, so breakfast is the largest meal then you have lunch which is smaller and dinner is a very light meal uh, and also i ate at about 7:30 or so in the morning my breakfast and about 12 i eat lunch i still do and about 6 o'clock in the evening i have my dinner and what i found was that even the stuff that i ate was all you know um, south indian um, and uh, there's no north indian food in it and and i actually found that i had lost weight but in in a good way my cholesterol levels came down from very high to uh, borderline high uh, and this was after 4 months 
Um, and the other thing which is was also very important uh, along with the diet was about with uh, was exercise and also having low stress. And these two are really, really important along with the diet. So you can't just have a diet. You have to have these other two things too. And um, and it was interesting because, uh, and I was wondering as a dietitian, you know, uh, you must be used to a lot of people coming to you and asking you for a good, uh, to prescribe them a good diet. And I was wondering how you went about it. Do you see the person um, as an individual, uh, which our modern medicine doesn't really do? You know, modern me medicine sees individuals as parts. So they'll take a heart, they'll take a lung, but they're not going to take the whole body, unlike in the past, right? And with the humoral theory. Uh, so I was curious whether that's the way you look at the diets. And also when you, um, uh, you know, there are all these modern fads about, you know, eat only meat or eat, uh, have a Subway diet or don't have starch or whatever. Um, uh, would you, uh, I mean, I personally consider that a very wrong way of uh, going about it. I actually think you have to balance and try and do it in this sort of the way in which research has shown that, you know, you go back to your, uh, uh, to the foods that are comfortable to you. So uh, I'm curious, what do you, th what's your view, Dr. Shah? <laughs> yeah, definitely, ma'am. Uh, nutrition says it's a holistic approach. As ma'am has very well said, it's not only diet, but the stress level also, which you are going through affects your hormone level. Uh, definitely. And I think with this coming of fat diet, it has become more difficult now. Uh, but what is your take now, since I want to ask another question, how has the pandemics affected the diet that we consume? Do you think COVID has actually affected us to change the eating pattern? Um, so, I mean, I think with COVID, what's really interesting is that, you know, we... Um, we have focus, we focus more on healthy foods now, right? I mean, because everybody's terrified of falling ill. Yeah. So there was this whole move towards let's have healthier food, let's have vegetables, let's have more things that are made locally, not much tin stuff. Then because people were cooking and getting tired of cooking, they started ordering in. So you also have that other, uh, you know, the other side to it, which is that when you order in, you have this uh, saturated fats, you yeah. know, tinned stuff. And so it's what's interesting is that we are our balance now is between healthy and then saturated. So it's like uh, healthy, unhealthy. And that's ultimately how we are balancing at the moment. But um, yes. yeah, and so I, I don't know whether this is something that will, con uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, because I think the younger generation, I mean, you probably know better in terms of, um, you know, because you're, you're more exposed to all of these people who come to you, right? So I'm curious about whether the younger generation is much more health conscious, and are they more less likely to have these really uh, sort of sugary sweets, lots of oily food, you know, which is what the older people are used to. Yeah. But I'm curious whether the younger people now have moved away yeah, from exactly. that. I would definitely say that the youngest generation is becoming more conscious because they have seen that the, uh, the elderly are getting into diseases which were avoidable. Hmm. Getting into metabolic diseases, definitely who could have managed that. So now they're becoming more conscious. There is more uh, exercise pattern which is coming up. And uh, in between, I have another question from a viewer and she has asked me, uh, what sparked you to write about food biography and what was the starting point of writing this book? Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, well, I actually because didn't set out. Interesting topic, like yeah. Yeah, but you know, like all, uh, like all any topic, I think any of you would research on. You know, you don't begin with an I. I mean, you sort of begin with a little question, and that's how I actually began. I didn't, I didn't set out to write a food biography of India at all. So I. started writing these as little essays um you know for this magazine called open magazine and uh, i'm an academic by training political scientist and you know and but i wanted to write about something that was quite different from uh, quite different uh, from my everyday job but at the same time uh, it would be informed by the way i had been trained and by the questions that are very important to me so the questions that are very important to me are about identity um sort of freedom justice equality you know these are concepts but what was most important was actually this identity question is you know who are we you know wh- what are we how are we what we are and i was i thought let me uh, and food sort of became a very interesting way of sort of examining these questions because if you think about say any religion you have these notions of purity and pollution connected to food um you know so who you eat with what you eat uh, whether you're vegetarian non-vegetarian whether you can you know uh, put uh, combine a certain uh, sort of you know yogurt with fish or you can't combine yogurt with fish you know there are different uh, sort of religious things that Uh, uh that that are there and they're all connected with food so it was very interesting to sort of um think about um identity in in connection with food so that's how i mean and so i was sort of i came up with questions like you know why do north indians and south indians have very different styles of cooking what explains it and then i'd go off and and you know it sort of looks into archaeology anthropology uh, questions of you know is there an india indo-aryan invasion you know uh, and because in south india uh as uh, you know there's this whole myth about aryans sort of coming down to south india but then the cooking techniques didn't translate there and then now it turns out there were no aryans after all and <laughs> we've been sort of this hybrid uh, nation and it, you know it's all indigenous right from you know way, way back right so so uh, these these this whole book sort of came through uh, came about only because after i started writing these uh at age uh, meeta kapoor who runs siahi uh, a literary agency she she yeah. called me up she said would you be interested in writing about food i said sure and then she found um uh, this publisher uh speaking tiger ravi singh who runs it so ravi singh and i had a chat and ravi singh said yeah you know i mean a food biography would be great so i said yeah but of india but i said you know but i only want to talk about myself you know i don't want to talk about india because i really don't know uh, you know i don't know how i can bring india in um, and then that's how it began and he was like you know i don't think people are going to be very interested in you he's very polite but I, you know, <laughs> so so then i began to think about you know india and then I I realized that it's actually a mosaic and you can't really talk about india as a monog as like one entity it's this mosaic of things and so i started examining the mosaics so yeah very long answer to a short question sorry <laughs> uh, the thing is that your book is written in such a style that it always poses a question to us to which you always give an answer so my question is that how the food has been used to invoke nationalism Yeah that's such an interesting uh question and that's also so and what's really interesting about it is that we go back to these old tropes you know so 
I didn't realize, for instance, that, you know, the Brahma Samaj in the early 19th century uh, and then later on in the Arya Samaj in the late 19th century, the, the nationalists were using uh, food motifs. So in the early 19th century, you had the Brahma Samajis who actually were against the caste system. So they said, uh, so the, those who joined the Brahma Samaj, especially the young Bengali youth, who, uh, they they wanted to have bread and lemonade. Now, bread and lemonade were made by Muslims and lower castes. So the high castes wouldn't touch it. And so it was taboo. Uh, so, but when you joined the Brahma Samaj, you were given permission to have bread and lemonade. So, you know, you have these diaries of these uh, really, um, you know, these uh, freedom fighters who said, you know, I mean, I, of course I joined. The minute they said I could have bread and lemonade, I was there, you know, I was going to join the Brahma Samaj. So, food and so so there you had, it was against the caste system where they wanted the Hindus to become like the modern, become more modern and less casteist. By the late 19th century, you had the Ari Samajis who wanted uh, to make a creator Hindu uh, who was not a subject anymore, who would actually oppose the British and the Muslims because uh, they, and they wanted to combine um, they wanted to bring, uh, they, they used food to sort of create this Hindu Hindu identity among the Hindus. And so they used this cow protection societies. Uh, they, they said, don't eat beef. So you, for instance, you have Vivekananda who said, you must eat meat because he was very influenced by uh, some of the Western philosophies where uh, there was this whole notion that, you know, meat eating made people strong and uh, sort of very uh, sort of aggressive and a, a meat eating Indian would then would not be a subject and docile anymore. Uh, but he said, don't eat beef. Um, and so so the same beef. And then now you have you come all the way down to the more recent period where you have these brigades going about saying, protect the cow, don't eat beef. Uh, and, and they want to create a Hindu wood bank, right? So, uh, and they go back to the same motives that the late 19th century had. So, and they want to create a different kind of nationalism because now we don't have any, you know, we don't have the British ruling. We rule ourselves. So why create the, these motives? But here, the, the way it's being done is to create a vote bank. So, you know, <laughs> so yeah, so nationalism, so it was used to create a particular form of identity and food was a very powerful motive. Mm. I mean, if you remember um, 1857, you know, again, it was about the use of um, uh, pig fat on the rifle, uh, the uh, mm. sort of the thing where you know Blitz, they had to yeah. they had to actually bite it, mm. and so and somebody said it's pig fat, and that rumor went mm. around, and uh, yeah, and then the other way that they passed messages in 1857 was through chapatis, where they would put the messages within and bake it in chapatis, and that's mm. how they uh, spread the secret messages. So. <laughs> Actually, uh, food has a history and a history has the food. Yes. It's actually interrelated. It's already working the same. So just on a lighter side, Shailshri, do you use this uh, craft of writing a novel to win cooking competitions as well? <laughs> yeah, so if any of you want to, I'm, I'm a great fan of MasterChef Australia, not okay. any of the other MasterChefs, but <laughs> the original. 
Um, and so, you know, so if you look at um, when you write a novel and, you know, what is it that makes a good story, right? So, so think about the Cinderella story. Um, so you have somebody who's a victim, who's not, so who have these, these evil stepsisters and stepmother. Then she has a fairy godmother who comes in. Then she goes to this ball. She meets this wonderful prince. Uh, but then the prince doesn't know who she is. So, and then she goes back to her old life. And so, and then the prince is looking for her and she's still a victim at that point. And then, you, you know, and then at the end, uh, you know, so she has a setback and then she, you know, and, and at the end, the prince finds her, right? So if you've applied this kind of um, uh, uh, schematic to a master chef cooking program, what, so I've come up with a few rules, you know, one is that don't peak early. So you have to be a slightly low profile initially, um, you know, where you sort of plod along and do yeah. your thing. Uh, but then you begin to show your, you know, techniques, but don't show it too much. Start failing. So get on to every one of those elimination, as many of those as you can find, because the more elimination challenges you're in, the more visibility you're going to get, right? And so, and in those programs, they want people who can talk well, but who can also right. cry. So cry quite a bit while you're doing all of this. And mm -hmm. uh, and then keep failing, but always don't fail so badly that you're going to be thrown out of the program. Fail enough to get into the elimination <laughs> once. And then you slowly build up your success after success. And then you see that trajectory. And then you can have one last, like, you know, when the prince doesn't find Cinderella, she goes back, you can do have, have that one last hiccup where you say, okay, uh, you know, you do something really, really badly, you know, and you're really in the dumps, but somehow mm. you fight back. And this is all during that one hour show where you, you know, somehow fight back and your cake rises and whatever else happens. Um, and then, yeah, and then at the end, you have the grand finale where you, you have succeeded against all odds. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I think yeah. this is a great mantra shared by you, ma'am. And uh, <laughs> I should actually try this. And while, while listening also, I was like, yeah, this is great. One should do that. Uh, <laughs> and one more thing I want to know that as you always say that food is affected by the religion, the caste, the food preferences of the people. Do you think media also, the social media is affecting what the young foodies are becoming now? Yeah, so um, uh, what's happened, which is wonderful about social media, is that it has democratized food and fine dining particularly. Not food, fine dining. So, uh, you know, earlier fine dining was always in, you know, amongst the very wealthy, right? I mean, people didn't go to five-star hotels, etc. But now what you find is that you don't have to go to a five-star hotel. You can still get fine dining in these smaller places which focus on a particular kind of cuisine but they do it in an exquisite way and it's affordable enough for people to go out there and uh, and uh, and then they come back and then they post it on their zomato and you know or whatever uh, social media facebook instagram and uh, it's wonderful because you know you no longer have only food critics saying these things right you have everybody is a food critic and everybody gets a chance to say what they want to say and express their opinion and it's wonderful i mean i think social media is really i think in that sense democratized the entire concept of um, a connoisseurship of taste um, uh, it's also what it's done is that you know you have 
couple of these uh, younger, uh, I mean, older and younger people, everybody sharing their grandmothers and great grandparents recipes um, in order to talk about, say, this is absolutely the dish that I had when I was a child, and this is how you make it. And earlier it was always with the grandmothers and nobody else knew the recipe, but now it's all out there. And you actually have grandmothers cooking. I mean, I was watching this wonderful program where you have this lovely sort of, she doesn't have any teeth, but she's like this wonderful grandmother in Punjab with this huge fat, but she's making these chana and all these all of these different things. And it's called Village Granny, or I've forgotten the, the name of that uh, website but there are lots of those kinds of shows and it's wonderful because when you watch that you can actually go and replicate it so again the secrecy has gone and you have more access to more delicious food that people grew up eating in their grandmother's houses right so uh, so yeah so social media is really i think in that sense revolutionized uh, the way we uh, the the accessibility of recipes of fine dining of you know of a variety uh, you know opened up a variety of tastes so not just indian it's from all over the world it's very global actually social media actually made us global uh, from the <laughs> traditional recipes to the new and even the fusion recipes exactly and even in your book ma'am you have shared some wonderful traditional recipes also some latest recipes which can be transformed easily at home do you ever think of writing a recipe book? Oh, not at all. <laughs> I I have no authority to write a recipe book because if you ask my husband, he says I only talk about food. I never seem to cook it. <laughs> so, and I said, yeah, I love eating food. I don't really, I mean, I like cooking, but my style is not, uh, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm not somebody who would actually write a recipe book. I'd like to taste, so I'm sure, I, I mean, I'd love to be invited to taste anybody else's recipes. <laughs> so all my viewers, ma'am, in ma'am's book, there are various recipes, traditional and some new future recipes. You should check out those recipes. And uh, I think it's great talking to you, ma'am. Uh, what wonderful. is the next endeavor, ma'am? After this, what are you planning to write next? <laughs> so, but I'm thinking about gardening actually and nature. So that's something that I want to connect with uh, because I'm, I love gardening. And so that's another area that, uh, you know, and I want to write about it in a slightly different way. Uh, and that's also, I think, something where um, a lot of younger people and especially with the pandemic, I think a lot of people have started looking at the greenery and, you know, thinking about, you know, in Delhi, our lungs are all totally gone, right, because of, of all of this pollution. And there's this move towards greening uh, the places where you live. And, you know, so there seems to be that kind of movement. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. And there's a question in the chat box, and uh, it's a Prakash who has asked, how long it took you to write this book? And it calls for a lot of research also. Yeah, but I'm a total nerd, a total researcher at heart. I love research. So, and uh, so uh, to me, it was a one. It was like a labor of love, but it was just wonderful. And it took me about um, three, no, four years, I think, three or four years to write it. And uh, um, you know, and I and I wrote it, but because I didn't sit down and for three years I didn't do research and then write it. I didn't do it that way. I was writing these series of essays in open. So I was doing research for that. And then what I did was I went and deepened some of that research and then brought it into the book. 
So, yeah. So for those of you who want to write, by the way, if those, I mean, just a tip is don't think of it as the book. Think of it as questions and begin with a small question and go from there. Um, because you write your introduction always at the end after you've come to the conclusion. Remember that. So, so you know, after you've read, written the whole thing, you go back and you write your introduction. Because by then you figure out what exactly is it that you've written about. Yes. So. <laughs> Definitely, because you introduce your own book in the introduction. So write the complete yeah. book and then you should have a And then you go back in, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then I think my last question for the session would be, with all this research, has it changed your pattern of diet? Has it influenced you? Uh, yes, and I'm not sure whether it's because of all of this research. Some of it is because of the research, because, you know, the things that I found about cultural ancestry and what, what suits my body and these sorts of things I have found through the research, right? So I've gone, I, I eat in a particular way. I eat in a particular rhythm. These things I, I do now, which has changed. Uh, but I've also changed my food habits and towards more simplicity, um, which it wasn't there earlier. So earlier, I would like really sort of, uh, I love Avati food. I love Deccani food, okay. lots of sort of, you know, mirchi spices or, you know, butter and all that. But now I find my body can't take so much of it anymore. So I like simpler uh, sort of combinations. So that's, so my lifestyles become much more simple and maybe it's because I've become older uh, or I, I'm not quite sure <laughs> the body okay. changes also I think so, so what, would be, what would be your takeaway message for the audience key? what your diet should be yeah so I would say just uh, I mean I, I think all of you should experiment with eating what your nana nani dada dadi ate okay so try that as an experiment connect it Plus, I said exercise plus low stress. And when I say low stress, stop looking at your emails and computers for some time. You know, take say take at least half a day off uh, and just don't look at it, because I think these uh, this technology really increases the stress. So if you can do um, diet stress, uh, low stress, and exercise and decent exercise, not high exercise, and just I mean walk for twenty minutes a day. That's more than enough. Um, you know, something like, I mean, I'm sure you have better <laughs> solutions, Dr. Sharma. But uh, yeah, I mean, just do some, a few of these things, I think Absolutely. would be, yeah. Would I you agree? Back to the roots is definitely true, ma'am. Because what are actually Dada Dadi ate, and I always was more nutritious and maybe more organic also. We are moving more towards the pesticides and artificially created foods. It is also affecting yeah. our ecosystem now. Yeah, so it was wonderful talking to you, ma'am. And uh, same here. <laughs> I will hand over the session to Amir sir. Amir sir, over to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Sharma. It was so enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Before moving ahead, I would like to take a moment and acknowledge the support of Speaking Tiger Publication as their association is invaluable to Oskela. At the outset, I would like to thank Mr. Shailesh Shankar, ma'am, and Dr. For joining us today, we look forward to hearing both of you again and to be as enlightened as we are today. And for my dear massive audience, I'm sure that after witnessing this conversation, you all are taking home an enriched version of yourselves, just as I will. Thank you for joining with us today. Until I see you again, this is Amit Jamil signing off. Thank you, Amit. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. You, <laughs>
Salvation 